0: So this morning, as we continue our series on discovering God's will together, we just have one verse. You're welcome to turn to it, or otherwise your attention to the screen. It's found in James, and it's in the fifth verse of that very first chapter. And there James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Life. Life is one continuous series of decisions and choices. We make decisions all the time. Some are conscious decisions, but many are simply routine, almost Unconscious, because they're choices we have made over and over so many times before, they're almost automatic. Some of our choices are momentous. Should we get married or not? Vocation, children, schooling, buying a house, caring for aged parents, following Jesus. Other choices are less significant, but still somewhat important, like the books we read, or the kind of vehicle we drive, or our vacation destination for this year. Many decisions have minimal implications, but still need to be made. What flavor of ice cream? What brand of macaroni? What we'll eat for supper? What television program we might watch? And all of these decisions, whether they're large and momentous or whether they're small and just easy to make, form who we are and who we are becoming. As Jesus followers, we long to be confident that the decisions we are making follow God's will for our life. And so we long to see our life as contributing to a greater, bigger purpose and at the same time still following that unique path that God has mapped out for us that we are to follow. For Jesus followers, being able to discern God's activity in the ordinary moments of day in and day out activity, as well as those major choice points, gives meaning to our life and to our human experience We tend to reserve our conscious discerning for those significant life-altering decisions. And most of us have a sort of a plan of how we go about it. We have our own process, if you will. And many of those processes include using our conscience. What do we value? What's right? What's wrong? Our experience Hoping, of course, that we have learned from our previous mistakes. There is always the approval of our friends, their advice that they give. But what they'll say after we might make a decision this way or that way. There are the pros and the cons that we weigh. And maybe there's a pertinent scripture passage or two that comes to mind. And in many cases, that process that we have developed over the years of our life serves us fairly well and then there are times when it doesn't. Spiritual discerning is directly related to the purpose of God for our life, for why he created us. In the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Jeremiah, and he recognized this very point when he came to a crossroads in his life. You see, midway through his life, through his prophesying, he comes thoroughly disillusioned with being a prophet. I mean... If you were Jeremiah, who wouldn't? He constantly was asked to bring bad news to God's people. God constantly invited him to live out the news that he was made, that he was sharing in ways that made him look absolutely ridiculous. And he always paid a huge personal price. So he finally got to the point where he accused God of tricking him into becoming a prophet. And he said, you know what, God? I'm done. I resign. I quit. I quit but it wasn't very long he realized that God made him to be a prophet. It was in his DNA. It was who he was supposed to be, and he couldn't set it aside, so he came back. In Jeremiah 20, he writes, If I say, I will not mention him, I will not speak his name anymore then within me there is something like a burning fire that is is shut up in my bones. (laughs) I am weary holding it in, and, and and I cannot. God has placed something like that in every single one of us. Essentials, if you will, to who we are and to who God is calling us to be. Essentials that we can't set aside without internally imploding. We need to identify those. And pay attention to those, what I'm gonna call essentials, not only to what is conscious and visible, but to those essentials that on the inside are unconscious and appear hidden. One of the ingredients that is often missing in discernment is our awareness of God's essential presence in our life. What is He doing? What is He saying? See, without this, discernment is just a well-thought-out opinion that we eagerly try to pass off as God's will. We need to listen in order to pray continuously. We need to attend to the stirrings of the Spirit in our heart. We need to learn to distinguish His promptings from the should and the oughts that people place on us. It's hard to listen for God's word and for his voice. And it seems even harder to ignore, to ignore the noises of his world. So this morning, just a few moments ago, we ordained elders and deacons. Elders have an immense responsibility. Not only do they need to be able to discern God's guidance and will for their own life They are now called to discern God's will and guidance for the faith community that they serve. To listen for God's voice while trying to tamp down the noises of the world and of people's personal opinions. The church in North America, here in the 21st century, has all but forgotten the church's long tradition of discernment. The biblical practice of discernment seems foreign to us, out of place in most of our faith communities. Sadly, people acknowledge that they have never had a personal experience with God. They've never felt his leading in their life, or at least they can't seem to name one incident. So by and large, we have replaced spiritual discernment with rational decision-making with the practices of the business world around us. And the church has paid a significant price. Even in the church, we now prefer the familiar and predictable practices of debating and deciding, of parliamentary procedure and voting over over the spiritual practices of prayer and sacred listening, of discernment and being in one accord, We tend to make decisions this way because far more church leaders are familiar with those business practices than they are with the biblical practices. So, to stay in our comfort zone, we form an agenda. We load it with all of the problems that need to be solved and all the decisions that need to be made. And one by one, we name the issue, we propose a solution, we debate the pros and the cons, we deal with the outliers, we call for a vote, we record the outcome, and we move on. We have decided. We're good. Our decision making is far more grounded in logical thinking and in rational discourse. You see, decision-making focuses on resolving and negotiating outcomes that seem to be acceptable to the whole. So we use Robert's rules to promote effective decision-making and to hopefully minimize conflict. We decide, and we think we're good, except we're not. Those practices inevitably succumb to political trade-offs, to power plays, to rushing to judgment. We forget all about God's presence. Decisions and the voting that often goes with them inevitably divide the group between winners and losers. Illustrations of those resulting disasters are seen on our television screens every single night from Washington, from the state capitals, and even from local governments. Sadly, Those kinds of things are not only happening in the political sphere, they're happening in congregations and even in denominations around the world. Politics, power plays, and rushing to judgment have devastating effects. It's not that the church leaders don't trust God. It's not that they don't trust God is going to speak, but they... Struggle to imagine that God would have something to say about this particular issue that is on the table right now and needs to be resolved. They struggle to distinguish what is from God and what is from their own heart and their own soul and what is from other sources. They struggle with what they're to do with what they think they might have heard. And Sadly, the term discernment, like many terms once wholly associated with faith and being a follower of Jesus Christ, have been secularized. The word primarily means exercising sound judgment for most. They see it as synonymous with being discriminating and judicious and shrewd and clever. But biblically, discernment is the ever-increasing capacity to hear a word from God, to see the work of God in our human situation so we can align ourselves, we're the ones that need to move, so we can align ourselves to what God is doing. Discernment is being attentive to God so that over time, God's heart becomes our heart and his path becomes our path. So spiritual discernment is different from deciding See, those who are discerning adopt a stance of indifference to anything and everything but God's will. They intentionally set aside their ego and their opinions and their personal interests and making sure they get their own way. Discernment focuses on listening for God's voice through his word, through other followers of Jesus and through our own soul. Discernment is a willingness to surrender our will to his will. Discernment is practicing the presence of God. And since discernment seeks agreement and consensus and unity, discernment waits for the leading of God's spirit in God's time. Something that's very frustrating for those of us who are attentive to our calendars and our agendas and getting it done. While decision-making and discernment may appear to be very similar on the surface, the truth is, at the foundation, they are significantly different. And many of us often miss the distinctions. But for the most part, one is focused on us and our needs, and the other is focused on him and his will. The easiest way to discern God's will is by looking in the review mirror. Hindsight is always clearer than foresight. If it turned out well, great. We say it's God's will. If it turns out poorly, we sort of figure we, we messed up. If we could just identify the process that has led to those helpful outcomes and compare it with the process used when we found misguided results, then we would have discerned something, something that would seem to me to be very helpful. Some time ago, we talked about a spiritual discipline called an awareness examine. We said an examine is a weight indicator on the scale. That is, it is the process of weighing or assessing a situation or an issue or even a process. You see, an examine is sort of like watching game film. And I apologize for a sports analogy, but here we go. Watching game film gives us the opportunity to notice our mistakes from the previous game or games with the assumption that if we can identify it as a mistake or a problem, we won't do it again. And at the same time, we notice what we did right and what we did well with the assumption that we're going to repeat those kinds of actions because they worked out pretty well. It provides us with the opportunity also to see the whole field, whether that's soccer or lacrosse or football or baseball or the court, if you will, if you're into basketball or tennis, And to see it from a more complete vantage point than when we're actually playing in the game. We're able to see the execution of the plays. We're able to see the overall functioning of the team together. We're able to see the rise and fall of momentum. We're able to see where we lost our focus and where we lost our energy. It's an examine that David describes for us in Psalm 139. And he says it's to be brutally honest. It's to be prayerful. It's to be an evaluation and a review of what went well and what didn't go so great. Now, this prayerful self-examination is more than just a naming of our sins and our failures. It's an invitation to notice, and noticing and awareness are key elements in any discernment process, but to notice our motives and our desires behind our behavior Behind the choices and the decisions that we have made. So it is a recounting, if you will, of where we noticed God and followed Him, and where we noticed God and didn't follow Him, and where we failed to notice God at all, and where we intentionally decided to hide from God. Tim Gallagher writes, The prayer of examine is the specific searching every day to notice where God's love was active, where God's love was leading, to discern within what may be resisting his leading and to discover the growth to which God is calling me tomorrow. So we look to the past, assess the present as a guide for the future. Ignatius talked about him a little bit last week the guy who wrote the primer on spiritual discernment, was so convinced of examine's importance that he required the Jesuits to put it into their rule of life and to do it every single day, he said it was more important than anything else they would do that day. But it's looking back. What good is it for making decisions about the future? And the answer again is, Looking back at the results of previous decisions can help us learn what to do as we look forward to future decisions. Because if we can't recognize God's presence in the past, how are we going to see God in the future? Recognizing God's presence in the past teaches us how and where to look for God tomorrow, in the future, so we can join in there. It is the same God that you and I see in our rearview mirror that we long to see in our windshield. What helped us make God-focused decisions in the past can also help us to make God-centered discernments in the future. In facing day-to-day as well as momentous decisions, we want to make the best possible discernments and decisions we can, both personally and together as a faith community. With some practice, good discernment processes can assist us in making those decisions with the attention and the energy they deserve. Through our choices, we can become the person that God has created us to be, and we can be the faith community that God is calling us to. So discernment is wholly focused on prayer, Susan Beaumont writes, the typical devotional prayer that precedes many of our board meetings and committees is not helpful for group discernment. She would note that instead of an opening prayer that invites us to think about more and more things, discerning prayer should be designed to bring us into the stillness, into the quiet, into having less things to think about So we can hear more of God as he speaks. But the first step in all discernment is prayer. Especially the listening part of prayer, listening to God. All spiritual discernment must continue to be bathed in prayer because it's not about us. It's all about him. There are three important prayers that I'd like to share with you. They are not scripted. They are not defined prayers. They are prayers that express and prepare our heart before God. The first prayer is called the prayer of indifference. The prayer of indifference. It's sometimes called shedding prayer. We think of indifference as a negative perspective, as a negative characteristic. We associate it with apathy and not caring. But spiritual indifference, spiritual indifference is a positive term, and it is, in fact, the single most important step in the discernment process. It means, I will be indifferent to anything and everything except God's will. I will be indifferent to anything and everything except God's will. Spiritual indifference is a conscious decision to detach myself from any specific outcome. That is, from having it my way, getting it my way. Spiritual indifference is relinquishing whatever keeps us from choosing God's will. Maybe it's my ego or my opinion or my desired outcome or just the fact that I want to win. Spiritual indifference is where we want to follow God more than we want anything else in all of the world, more than looking good before other people, more than wealth or power, more than personal ownership, or comfort, or advantage. Spiritual indifference is, as Charles Olson says, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. But getting to that place of spiritual indifference is the single biggest challenge, because when we enter into a discernment process about something, it's an important issue. And we all have important Opinions about every important issue. It's something that matters, and it matters to us. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the classic example of indifference, Despite the possibility of being totally ostracized from her community, including her family and her friends, of being judged harshly by those who didn't understand what God was doing in her life, about being rejected by her husband-to-be, by enduring lots of inconvenience and pain, Mary's response to the angel that showed up unannounced in her life was simply, here I am, the servant of the Lord. May it be to me according to his word. That's indifference. Mary had zero time to prepare her spirit. She already knew what indifference was all about. Her relationship with the father was secure. So she could pray this prayer. The movement toward indifference is the doorway between two worlds. Between the world of human decision-making on this side and the room of divine will on this side. It is, as we have said, the test of the kingdom of which you are a member. Is it the kingdom of me? (laughs) Or is it the kingdom of God? See, spirit of indifference is not something that we can accomplish on our own. Everything in the spiritual life is not something we can accomplish on our own. So God needs to accomplish it in us and through us, and so we need to pray. It's not something we can pray once and say, God, give me a spirit of indifference, and God gives it, and we're good for the rest of our life. It's a daily, sometimes moment-by-moment prayer. And so we pray. We await his answer. Meanwhile, the questions we need to ask go something like this. What needs to die in me so that God's will can come forth in my life? What do I need to set aside in my life so that I can be open to what God wants? God, I know that I'm not indifferent. I know that I am still clinging to my agenda, to my needs and my wants, God. These, there are things I want, There are opinions, my opinions, that other people really ought to hear, Lord. So if I'm becoming, if I'm to become indifferent, Lord, you're going to have to do it. Seeking God's guidance only makes sense if we're willing to accept God's guidance. We need to pursue indifference because it leads to obedience. Discernment and surrender are always intimately connected. Not my will but yours be done Jesus prayed. That becomes our prayer as well. This prayer reminds us why the prayer of indifference is so important because the wisdom of God appears to be foolish in this world. Discerning Christ followers know that God's wisdom appears foolish to others and even appears foolish to them at times. But because we are indifferent to anything but God's will it doesn't really matter how it appears. When we have died to our need to look good, to prove ourselves, to have it our way, that's Burger King, by the way, not the church, or to win, we are finally ready to step into the next prayer, to ask God for his wisdom and to receive it. You see, without having come to the place of indifference, any prayer for God's wisdom just easily becomes a rigged election. And then comes the third prayer. The third prayer is the prayer of quiet trust and dependence. Psalm 131 is a great example. This is a prayer that acknowledges our complete dependence on God. We are, even all together, incapable of knowing and discerning God's will perfectly. The puzzle is now together, but there are still pieces missing. That's how it often works. This is the prayer of childlike trust. This is the prayer of expression of our dependence on God. These three prayers give the impression of steps one, two, and three. But the truth is they're not. They're all ongoing. They're all overlapping. They cannot be roached, They have to be from our heart but they slow us down because they commit us to wait on God, on God's timing. And so we wait for God to answer these prayers in his time. Discernment takes time. These prayers hopefully become ingrained in our character, in our thinking as a lifestyle deep in our soul. We must learn to approach all of life with this spirit of indifference. It's not about us. It's always about him. With listening. With trust. Oswald Chambers writes, God does not exist to answer our prayers. But by our prayers, we learn to discern the mind of God. So how does this discernment stuff work? Here's the nitty-gritty. What do you want to know? What is it you want to discern? What do you want to hear from God? We need to frame the issue. What is the question we would put before God? We need to formulate a God-focused discernment question. Please understand, not all questions require a full discernment process. But when a discernment is necessary, the questions that we are willing to ask are more important even than the answers that we think we already know. It's the questions that ultimately help us to reflect on God's presence, on God's calling, on our deepest desires, and on our false self. It is the question that assists us in gaining insight into the challenge that awaits us. In defining the issue, we always need to listen for the deeper question. God might be asking us to go deeper. So, for example, a question we might ask about whether we should buy a new house or not might bring up the question of our lifestyle. What school we ought to send our children to may bring up the question of where are our priorities. The question of whether we ought to buy a vacation home or an RV might bring up the question of the pace of our life and our margins. If we engage in those challenges as a spiritual practice, we ask God into those questions. We ask him to help us bring clarity to those answers, to reveal to us his guidance. And even when we think we might know what the question is, we should always be open to a deeper question that God is calling us to, that is lurking there under the surface. Discernment always involves listening for that deeper issue. And then discernment typically happens in three basic steps. We've talked about the first one, but let's talk about it again for a moment. The first step is to get ready. The first step is to pray for spiritual indifference, for divine wisdom, and for quiet trust. Sadly, most of us like to short-circuit this process of prayer. So we offer one or two minutes about prayer, and then we simply do what we already designed we were going to do in the first place. And then after accomplishing what we wanted to do, we declare it God's will. Praying takes time. Praying engages the Slow work of God. And then second, get set. Get ready, get set. Discernment. Discernment involves intentional and significant listening for God. So we listen for God in his scripture. We listen for God in our Christian traditions and experience. We listen for God in the inner promptings of his spirit within us. We listen for God in our consolation and in our desolation that we talked about last week. We listen for God in the pertinent facts and information that surround this issue. We listen for God in other believers' experience and wisdom and listening. And we listen for God in the words of those who will be most deeply impacted and affected by the decision we're called to make. It is helpful often to write down what we're hearing. It helps us to formulate our listening and our feelings and our thought while they're still fresh. We'll be able to observe as we read over that patterns emerging as we did in the listening labs and the responses we got to that. Again, it takes time. Even after discernment has been made, we keep listening because discernment, in contrast to making a decision, always remains dynamic and fluid. The Spirit might just add some more pieces to the puzzle that give us a clearer picture that we didn't have before. And when God's will becomes clearer, we adjust. So get ready, get set, and then go. Go share what you're hearing. What themes seem to be rising from the surface? What clarity begins to be forming? What can we agree on? What are we feeling together? This is where consolation, remember consolation draws us closer to God and to one another. Consolation are those feelings that bring healing and restoration and energy and refreshment. So consolation and desolation, that, that turning inward and being drawn away from community, about feeling frustrated and worried and drained, those feelings start to play a role. The challenge is to narrow slowly the options and not too quickly Jump to a single conclusion. What on the surface may initially appear best after some reflection might not be the best result. We need to go. Go share what we're hearing. We need to go and seek consensus. Now, consensus is not the same as unanimous decision. The unanimous decision is where everybody around the table, all the participants feel that all of their personal preferences have been satisfied. That hardly ever happens. Consensus is not holding a majority vote and then asking for another motion that says, all in favor of saying our five to four vote to approve this was unanimous, say aye. Consensus... He is not giving in to the pressure simply to conform. Consensus means that we believe we have thoroughly discerned this issue. We have saturated it with prayer. We have reflected on it. We have listened to the people that we need to hear who might speak the voice of God to us. If we can all agree that the process has gone well and now we begin to see those common themes come to the surface we can agree on what just the next step is. That's consensus. Periodically, even consensus seems evasive. In that case, the invitation is back to prayer, back to listening, back to more reflection. Maybe God is inviting us to rest with the question for another day or a week or a month or more. Only as a last resort should discernment suddenly be turned into a decision with a majority vote. Once we believe we know what God wills, then we go and do it. That's the slow work of God. I'd like you just to note two simple things as as we finish this. First, discernment takes time. It's hard to push water uphill. As much as we would like to hurry God along on his agenda, we can't bring clarity before it's time. The Holy Spirit does not act on our command or on our timetable. While discernment is a process of seeking God's guidance for specific issues and challenges, it is far more important that we intentionally seek God's guidance, that it becomes a way of life, personally in our own lives, but also in faith communities. And then, second, we will be blessed. If we intentionally make God the central part of our discerning process, we can't fail. Even if what the result turns out to be is less than ideal in our mind. Because ultimately discernment is not going to be measured by the outcome or by the results, but by the blessing we discover from our increased awareness of God's presence and activity in our lives and in the unity we experience in the family of God. So even if our discernment doesn't turn out like we hoped, we will be blessed because we have spent time with him in prayer. We have sought his face. And we have listened to his voice. Let's pray together. God of wisdom. Paul invited us, if we sought wisdom, to come and ask. So we ask. Father, give us wisdom. Give it to us generously, abundantly, and soon. Father, may we labor together as we discern your will for the building up of your world and your church. (coughs) Counsel us to act and then to wait. Turn our heart always toward those in greatest need, and away from our own preoccupations and fears. Help us never to forget that love and mercy are your greatest gifts. Given us all to offer one another as we see them in Jesus Christ, who alone is our joy, our way, our truth, and our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.